Welcome to 242, a podcast of the Buffalo Vineyard Church where we explore topics that are relevant to our lives as students of the way of King Jesus. This is episode number six. I'm talking with Rebecca Kimball about her work and experience and ideas about the criminal justice system. We talk about how she got involved in the criminal justice system in the first place in reform work. We um, talk about the criminal justice system and just the different aspects of it. We discuss injustices in the system. We discuss how we ought to balance mercy and justice. And we ask the question, an attempt to answer the question, how, how should we work to change things? Rebecca, who, who are you? <laughs> Who am I? Um, as it relates to the criminal justice system. Sure. Or, I mean, you could, you could start with, you know, your notebook or whatever. (laughs) Well, Steve would start by saying that I'm a nerd because I'm the first person who's brought notes to his podcast. Um, but I'll, I'll live with that label. I think I can handle it, (laughs) but I'll start by talking a little bit about why I'm interested in the criminal justice system. Um, my previous job that intersected quite a lot with the criminal justice system. And that I think will be a helpful framing for this conversation. Um, So to give you a little bit of context, I became interested in the criminal justice system because a high high school classmate of mine was incarcerated um, Mm. during my, my senior year of college. And that's the first real exposure that I had to the criminal justice system. Um, watching him go through the trial process, listening to his sister talk about what was going on, um, seeing his family try to figure out ways to visit him when he was incarcerated several hours away from where they were located. Mm. And I ended up coming to Buffalo, going to graduate school, getting a master's degree in history, and sort of tangentially looking at mass incarceration during my time in that program. And Through, at, through some of the classes or yeah, just on your own? Through some of the classes. Um, I was doing a lot of work in... Um, the history of different public policy and that interacts with the, the criminal yeah. justice system in, in several different ways. And my advisor at the time, her, her husband was actually very involved in a volunteer capacity on working to pass um, the humane, altern- humane alternatives to long-term solitary confinement bill, which has actually since passed in New York state, but he was very influential in that process. And we ended up having conversations about that. And after I graduated, I ended up taking a part-time job with that organization and working on that particular piece of legislation. And at the same time, I was working also part-time for Houghton College, uh, as first as the program coordinator, then later as the full-time director of a program that they had started specifically for formerly incarcerated students. So folks who are coming back from federal, state, local correctional facilities were interested in pursuing an associate of arts degree and really needed some additional support, both in terms of academic support and and social services. So they needed help finding housing, um, making sure that they were getting meals, um, help finding employment, all of these things that you wouldn't typically think of a college student needing to do on top of going to college. Right. So I spent one year doing the um, organizer job. I spent three years working at the college. And those two experiences have really shaped my view of the criminal justice system. So... I would, I want to ask how they've, how they shaped it, but I, but maybe what, uh, what I would ask first is to what degree did you have an impression of the criminal justice system before doing that work? And to the degree that you had one, what was it? I had very little knowledge of the criminal justice system. So anything I knew was really through that one experience that my friend had had. And I knew some details of that, but not a whole lot. And so I I went into it pretty blind. I Mm. remember actually driving to UB at one point and looking through the library just for any books that they had about college and prison programs, because I just felt so out of my depths and getting five or six books and trying to read them the first month of that job, just to wrap my head around what in the world I was supposed to be doing. So would you say that you're the type of person who normally signs up for things that you have absolutely no knowledge of? No, no. I typically <laughs> like structure and like planning. So yeah. I, I was pretty sure I knew the answer to that question. But <laughs> you're correct. Yeah. Well, so what are what are some of the things that you learned in that work about the criminal justice system? Yeah. So uh, some really basic things. I didn't understand the difference between what a jail and a state facility was what the difference between a state facility and a federal facility was. I didn't understand what it meant when someone said that they were on parole or probation. Those were all things that I learned from my students and continued learning over the three years that I was involved in that program. It was a ever 
growing process. Well, so I want to come back and you can explain some of those mm-hmm. for, for people who are listening who are like, oh, I don't know the difference between those things. Sure. You can do that. But but what are some of the other things that you learned? Yeah. So I, I shared an office with someone who himself was a returning citizen, um, a, a dear friend of mine. His name is Jerome. He had done, oh, I think 20 years in a state prison. And a lot of what I learned was from him. And Jerome is someone who to me just exemplifies, um, it, he would say this and I would say this too, God's work in his life and how God can redeem anyone. Yeah. And Jerome was very public about his story. And he um, was convicted of murder at a very young age, spent 20 years in a correctional facility, um, became a, a believer, ended up having a huge influence on the various facilities that he was in. He actually developed a mentoring program for young men who are coming to, into the facilities. He now does that program with folks out in the community. And I learned so much from Jerome about forgiveness and grace and compassion. And I saw him live that out in his own life and his own interactions with other others. And I also saw him holding people accountable. And it was that balance of the two um, that is hugely important. I just saw that every day in my interactions with him. Yeah, that's awesome. I, so I, again, I like to dig more into that too. Um, but is there anything else that you learned that you wanted to point out? Yeah, I, I definitely did see the the numerous injustices that mm-hmm. exist. And I think we were talking about this earlier, but in, um, we, we obviously live in a fallen world, right? We live mm-hmm. on the the intersection of the already not yet where heaven and earth are, are touching, but have not yet <laughs> come together. And in that world, any justice system that we have is just going to be an approximation of justice. And that's really all that we can, we can hope for. But so often our criminal justice system fails to even be that it fails to even be an approximation of justice. Mm. And I saw that over and over again with, with my students, the interactions that they had with, with parole officers, with probation officers. Um, I saw firsthand how difficult it is, particularly once you're, you're snared in that system to get out of it. There are just so many barriers that you have to overcome. And I saw how lucky I had been to grow up in a family that, um, we, we had a place to live. We had food on the table. My parents prioritized my education and so many of my students never had that. They didn't grow up in an environment that made it easy for them to be successful. Right. Well, so maybe I, I won't ask you if there's any more that you learned because I think those three things are really, those, those would be three great things for us to talk through. So just kind of some, I guess, context about the system itself. And then maybe the second thing we could talk about is some of the injustices that you see. Sure. Um, and then the third would be kind of that, the Jerome and the balancing of compassion and grace and mercy with accountability and justice. Does that, does that sound all right? That sounds great. Okay. You'll so, have to remind me of the points yeah, yeah, yeah. as we go. I'm no, not taking notes. I just have my notebook. Ah, all right. That's, that's where you keep all your facts and figures. <laughs> that's right. That's good. Um, so yeah, what, I mean, you, you talked about just some terms and things that you didn't understand that you came to learn just about how the system works and what it is. What are, what are some of the most common misconceptions that you bump into when you're talking to people about the criminal justice or, or hear it talked about on the news or what, right. you know, where you're like, that's not right. I yeah. know better. So perfect example. I probably some people who are listening to this have listened to the the sheriff's debate for Erie County. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed when listening to the debate that people didn't know the difference between a jail and a prison. Those, those words were being used interchangeably. And these are folks who are running for the office of, of yeah. sheriff. Um, so let's start by, maybe we can clarify those terms. We can talk about parole and probation and then jump into sure. the other areas. Okay. Yeah. So, um, when we talk about the criminal justice system, it's really divided into three areas. You have federal facilities, state facilities, and local jails. And the, the vast majority of people are held in state facilities. Um, there are about 2.1 million people who are incarcerated in the United States, and and over half of them are in state facilities. Yeah. There are only about 200,000 in federal facilities. Um, and then in, in local facilities, so places like the Erie County Holding Center, um, the Erie County Correctional Facility out in Alden, that has the second largest population. And those are folks who are, are rotating in and out on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. So just understanding the difference between those is really important. And where you're going depends on, on what you have been accused of. So if you're accused of a, a misdemeanor offense, you're going to the, the local jail. If you're accused of a felony, you're going to a state or a federal facility. 
And that's also important when we're talking about particular pieces of legislation. So um, two years ago, maybe there was some federal legislation that passed that reduced the mandatory minimum sentence for for drug offenders, but it only applied at the federal level. Right. And so it really affected very few people because of the 2.1 you know, million people who are incarcerated, only 200,000 of them are, are incarcerated in a federal facility. So just understanding those jurisdictions is important to even understand what's happening in the legislative process. Right. So that's the first thing I would say. The second is that when we talk about mass incarceration, we're not just talking about the people who are actually physically incarcerated in a facility. We're talking mm -hmm. about the folks who are on parole and probation. And the idea behind parole and probation was actually a good one. So parole and probation were supposed to be an incentive for good behavior. So if you were sentenced to 25 years in prison, if you behaved well in prison, um, you would have the chance of getting out on on parole. So you might serve 15 years in prison and the rest of your sentence in the community under the supervision of a, of a parole officer. Um, so parole is for state-level offenses. Probation is for local and federal. Um, and so these systems were designed to allow people to finish their, their sentence in the community. But at the moment, we have 4.4 million people who are under some mm -hmm. form of, of supervision, either parole or probation. And what we've really seen happening is is people who are in those positions, and this is certainly not everyone, I don't want to generalize, um, but we've seen abuses of power in those positions too. It's um, very common for people who are on parole or probation to be reincarcerated for what's called a technical violation. Right. So when you're released on parole or probation, you have a, a list of rules that you have to abide by, and they're very specific rules. So you have a curfew, um, you aren't allowed to drink alcohol, your parole officer has to approve where you live. They have to approve where you work. They decide whether you are allowed to have a driver's license or not. Um, so they're very involved in the pretty intimate details of your everyday life. Right. And if you violate any one of those rules, you can be reincarcerated. So it's not a separate criminal offense. It's not a separate criminal charge. It's a technical violation of your conditions of parole. Right. Um, Basically, they're saying we let you out because you're on good behavior and we don't think you're on good behavior anymore. So you're going back in. Exactly. Exactly. And there's very little due process right. to act as a check and balance to that system. Right. Because the due process is what got what we follow the due process before we took away your freedom. Right. And now we, we, we don't have to do that anymore. Exactly. Exactly. For better, for worse. Yeah. And so I had a lot of students who were, were reincarcerated on parole and probation violations um, during their time in the program. And obviously that just creates so many hurdles. So I'll give you an example. I had a student who, um, he was in Allentown at one point picking up a pizza and a gun went off and he was near the scene of where this gun went off and he was accused of being the person who shot it. And so he was um, taken into custody. It was a violation of probation. There were possibly going to be separate criminal charges once they came back with the fingerprints from this gun. But because he had been accused of a probation violation, he had to sit in the holding center. You don't get um, bail when you're on. Well, now you do. But <laughs> you didn't used to get um, um, bail when you were on probation. You still can't get it if you're on parole. And so... He was sitting in the holding center for several weeks, and we ended up going to the judge, having multiple conversations, saying, this is a single dad. Um, he's the sole provider for his daughter. He is in school. He's trying to hold down a job, and all of these things are becoming impossible because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we genuinely believed that. But he sat in the holding center, and it wasn't until the fingerprints came back from the gun that cleared him. And he, his prints weren't on the gun. He wasn't involved with this. Um, that he was eventually allowed to go. And so for so many people, that's a major setback. You could have lost your house during that time. You could have lost custody of your child. Um, you're not paying bills. So you have late payments, you have late payment fees that are accumulating. And that decision is up to the discretion of one person. Right. And we yeah. were very fortunate that we actually in the interactions with this particular judge, she agreed to allow him to go about a week before they got the fingerprints back from the DA's office. So it could have been longer. Mm. Um, it wasn't, thankfully, in that situation. But many folks don't have people advocating for them on that level. And so they end up sitting there until something comes back from the DA's office. And that can be delayed for a very long time. And 
like I said, it, it genuinely affects your life. And yeah. when you get into a cycle like that, it's incredibly difficult to, to get out of, first of all, but you become extremely depressed. Like, how am I ever going to overcome this? Even when I'm doing all the right things, right. something like this can still happen. And I'm sitting in the holding center again. So you we were going to talk about just kind of the system and some terminology. Yeah, and then I got going. You, you, got, you, you, <laughs> you definitely have started talking about some of the injustices that you've seen, which we can dive into that. But I wonder if there's more about the system itself that you would want to explain. Maybe, again, what are some common misconceptions that you bump into that you might want to clarify? Yeah, I think the main ones are, are the ones that we've touched on, the difference between jurisdiction levels, the difference between parole and probation, what that even means. Um, and I think another thing to keep in mind is just how many people this system affects. So we right. talk about the people who are incarcerated. We talk about the people who are under community supervision. We also have all of their family members. And when you start talking about those numbers, you're you're in the hundreds of millions of people who are directly infected right. by, by mass incarceration. Well, so what do you, you had said there were something like um, 2 million people currently um, actually locked up yeah. and like four and a half million people who are um, being supervised. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, almost 7 million people, right. but then that's only just right now. That's a snapshot of the people right now. Do you exactly. know the number of people, like what percentage of society has been incarcerated or yeah, that's a great question. There you know? are about 77 million people in okay. the United States who are living with a criminal record. Yeah. So that's, um, that's a good chunk of change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, what is that like 20%? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then, like you said, when you factor in family members who not just like my cousin and I know him, but like my father who's yeah. not home or right. my, when they, when they run these statistics, they're looking at immediate household members. And right. when you look at immediate household members, the number of people affected who have not themselves been incarcerated jumps to 113 million. Right. So that's a third of our country. It's a lot of people. Right. So, yeah, I, I mean, I wonder if in people's perceptions about the criminal justice system, if there are any misconceptions that you would want to point out there, like things that you just hear people say where, you know, you either do or you want to correct there. <laughs> well, I, I know you well enough to know you probably don't often interject. Yes, but, I'm not the most confrontational person, yeah. but you know, you're giving me an open, open right. slate here. So. So, so you don't have to name anybody, but just conjure up the pictures in your head of these people <laughs> saying these just really silly things and oh. then let them have it. All right. Well, one of the most common misconceptions is that mass incarceration continues to be driven by drug related charges. Okay. Um, you're probably familiar with Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Right. She published it, I think, in 2015. And her, her overriding argument is that the war on drugs caused mass incarceration. And she's not wrong in that it certainly expedited it at the beginning. But one of the dangers of her argument is that you can leave readers thinking that that's what's continuing to drive mass incarceration today. And there have been numerous studies done, and even just looking at the statistics of what people are being being charged for, while they're incarcerated, it's actually being driven by violent crime today. So yeah. only about 14% of people who are incarcerated are incarcerated solely for a drug offense. Um, and that's, it's problematic on several levels. It's problematic right. because we're, if, if we're trying to reform the criminal justice system by um, reducing penalties for drug possession or drug use or sale of drugs, it's not going to affect that many people. And so we're not actually getting at the root cause of the issue. And so we need to understand what the issue is in order to solve it. And if we keep on telling ourselves that it's being driven by nonviolent drug offenders, we're never actually going to, to solve the problem that really does exist. Mm. The other problem is that violent offenders don't give people warm, fuzzy feelings, right? And so if you pull, pull liberals, if you pull conservatives, the majority of both groups don't have a whole lot of... Um, desire to see people who have been convicted of a violent crime out on the streets. Right. And that's something that we, we have to be able to have conversations about. Um, because I don't think that we should, and I'm, you know, laying, I'm telling you exactly what I think here, which is also unusual. Mm. I don't think that we should just put people in prison and throw away the key. Yeah. But if we can't even have a conversation about the reasons that people are in prison, we can't right. begin to think of a way to have them safely reemerge. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think um, cynically, 
I would say that most people who are having conversations about things like this aren't all that interested in solving the problem. They're just more interested in being perceived as the kind of person who wants to solve the problem. Yes, I think you're right about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Don't be that person. <laughs> that's, that's what we want everyone to walk away from this episode. Stop with. it. <laughs> just stop it. All right. Any other any other misconceptions that you wanna you wanna correct? I think those are the big ones. All right, cool. Well, so you already started talking about some of the um the ways that the criminal justice system is not only not promoting justice, but actually can be promoting injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk more about that. I mean, what are some of the things that, well, and uh, may, maybe this was in our conversation before, but that was part of what motivated you to do some of the work that you were doing, right, is, right. is around solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk, you can talk about that. You can talk about some of the other things that you've seen that from your perspective, you would say, this is this is wrong. It should not be this way. And it is, and here's the scale or here's the details. Yeah. So I, the first thing that comes to mind for me is parole and probation, just because there are so few checks and balances in that system. And it's very easy for one person to make what it it has, in my experience, oftentimes been an arbitrary decision that really affects a person's life and not just them, but their entire family. Um, And like I said, it's interesting because parole and probation really emerged from a good place, right? You want to give people a chance to reemerge into the community. So you're saying that well-intentioned people can create horrific injustices. I am. Yes, that's exactly it. (laughs) Man, what a disappointing thing. It is a disappointing thing. I didn't say that this podcast episode would be super, you know, cheery. Welcome to 242 (laughs) with Rebecca Kimball. That's right. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's that's an area where it's really easy to see it. And I think the other one would be solitary confinement because that's Mm. another aspect of the criminal justice system where up until this new piece of legislation passed, there's been very little oversight. So the best way to think about solitary confinement is as a prison inside a prison. So if you are accused of doing something that is a violation of the, you know, several hundred prison rules, you can be put into, to solitary confinement. And one of the things that I really appreciate about this particular piece of legislation is just how nuanced it is. It acknowledges that there are times that either for the safety of themselves or for the safety of, of other people, um, someone might have to be separated from the general population, but they also acknowledge that 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 can't be just isolation because that creates more mental health issues, um, physical issues than existed b- before. Yeah. Um, and so this bill actually invented essentially a, a new unit called a residential rehabilitation unit that is for folks who do need to be separated from the general population for this temporary period of time. Um, but it involves really intensive programming to try to get at the root causes of the particular issue. Yeah. And, it has added some oversight. So there is now um, due process involved in that. So if someone is accused of, of breaking a rule that sends them to solitary confinement, they're allowed to have outside counsel come in and, and defend them essentially yeah. within the criminal justice system itself. But that's an area where there were not many protections until this legislation passed. Yeah. yeah. What else? Th- those are the two really big things that come to mind. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's obviously a, a lot of issues around um, public public defenders. So most of the folks that I had in my program didn't didn't have an attorney that they had decided on. They had a court appointed attorney who had lots of other cases on their docket and just didn't have the time to to dig into what was going on um, and provide the best defense that was possible. And it's certainly not because they don't want to in many cases. It's that they're overwhelmed with the the caseload that they have. Yeah. Um. And so when you're starting at that level. I mean, when you're starting even with the defense not being adequate, right? then that's going to affect how your sentencing goes. It's going to affect how long you're incarcerated. Then you have rules inside the prison system that can be arbitrary that affect whether you're going to be released to parole or probation. It just becomes a vicious cycle. So I, I've actually been defended by a public defender. Oh, you have? I don't know if you, you probably wouldn't have known that. <laughs> now you do. No, do tell us, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything that big, but yes, I was. It didn't go well. Mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, didn't go well. But so, I mean, maybe talk a little. So I guess, I guess maybe what I wanted to get at is 
you know, for people who've never been before a judge, um, as a defendant, um, you, you don't really understand what that feels like sure. because you're, you're basically in a situation where you don't pr- pretty much the only thing you know is that you're in big trouble and you don't have any power to do anything about it. Right. right. Like right. you're in a room with people who can do whatever they want to you and you don't really understand the rules and you don't really understand, you know, the, the procedures. Mm-hmm. And then, so what we say is because that's, the, the state of our, and you know, I mean that like any bureaucracy is going to be that. So even the best justice system that we could come up with, that's going to be the case right. that if you're, if you're in it, it's just never going to be a good day for you when you're, you know, a day in court is not a good day. Mm-hmm. Um, so given that fact, you need to have a right to counsel, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we have public defenders. So that's a good thing. It's a good idea, but then you're in this situation and then Typically speaking, your public defender is is essentially incapable of helping you either because they don't have the time or the energy, or because they don't have the know how, or right. and so your your quote unquote help is not helping. Yeah, and that leads the vast majority of people to take a plea. So rather than right. go to trial, rather than present all of the evidence, you're essentially told it this will this process will go faster, the outcome will be set. Right, you're not waiting on the arbitrary nature of a jury. Um, you know what will happen. It will happen faster. So therefore you should take the plea bargain. And that's a huge incentive, right? To just be done with it and right. move on to the next step rather than have it drag out for months. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's, um, well, as you said, the, the best we can hope for is a system that approximates justice. And so, I mean, I think it's fantastic that we have public defenders, right? Um, it would be great if they were a little more effective, a little yeah. more robust, had some sharper <laughs> cheat teeth. For sure. Um, yeah. What, what are some other aspects of the system that you would point out and say, man, these are just, just places where it's broken. Yeah. So one of the things that, that you see commonly used in the criminal justice system is something called the compass risk assessment. I don't mm. know if you've heard nope, of that. I haven't. So the compass risk assessment is essentially, it's supposed to predict your likelihood of committing another crime. Okay. And, the the problem with this assessment is that it asks questions like describe the neighborhood you grew up in, describe the level of education you have, how yes. many interactions have you ever had with a police officer? And what ends up happening is that it skews the results. And so people who have grown up in um, urban neighborhoods, in impoverished neighborhoods, in neighborhoods where there's more likely to be a police contact, get a much higher score, are much more likely to be predicted to commit another crime. And that actually is used in the sentencing process. Oh, wow. It's used in the sentencing process. It's used while you're in the, the justice That's system. That's insane. Yeah. To determine what facility you're going to, to determine what programming you're eligible for. It's used when you're released to determine what level of community supervision you're going to have. And there was actually an excellent article about this um, probably five years ago, pointing out just how flawed this particular risk assessment exam is. That's It's used in New York State. It's used at all levels of the criminal justice system and consistently gets it wrong. Oh <laughs> I mean, just gosh. totally gets it wrong. Well, um, even it, So even if it were right in its predictions at a group level, which I would imagine it's got some predictive value right. when you're, you know, if you're going to take like whatever, a million people who have this fit this profile. Yep. And we know that it's predictive for that group in this way. Okay, great. But what about this person? What about Joe? The individual or, that you're yeah, looking at. Yeah, that's crazy. And so that's a, that's a huge issue because like I said, it affects you at every point in the, in the system. And I mean, I can understand using it for, I don't know, like trying to promote interventions. You know what I mean? Like where it's like, hey, we're going to try and help you. Right. But to use it to punish people for things that they haven't done, just their membership in an arbitrary group right. for which we have some statistics. That's really crazy. Yeah. It's hugely problematic. I would use stronger language if I wasn't <laughs> being recorded. Well, we probably both would. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. It's a hard who, one to follow. Who, who's responsible for that? <laughs> who's responsible who did for that? it being used? Yeah. That's a great question. You know, I, I'm who, sure who that do they we said, go throw rocks at. That's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> well, we don't want you to get and end up <laughs> right. in front of a public defender again. So it's let's true. not go that route. You can write a strongly worded op-ed though. <laughs> that doesn't feel as good. That's true. It doesn't, does it? <laughs> no. Yeah. Who did it? I don't actually know. I would have to look at this particular article. Um, 
I know that it's widely used in New York State. I don't remember when it started to be used, and I don't remember. We could blame who. it on Cuomo. That would be easy. <laughs> that, it's <laughs> very a, easy to do that. It's a good right time now. to blame him. It's a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Governor, ex-Governor, whatever we call you. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I think that we should provide some levity though, because we've been talking about some really hard things, and I had a lot of laughs during my times mm. working with these particular students too. Yeah. Um, my students just had great senses of humor and yeah. um, I'm trying to think of some particular stories that you would just find mildly entertaining at least. I remember one and I will not use the language that my student used because this is for the 242 podcast. <laughs> but gonna, Yeah, we, we got to keep it. I don't know what we have to keep it, but Definitely not R, <laughs> or I think PG-13. I don't know what the, how the rating system works. You'll have to think about that. I, I want to get like one of those like beepers, you oh, know? Oh, there we go. That I would could work. just use like anytime Rebecca talks. <laughs> you do like the sound effects, so that would fit right in. <laughs> Rebecca swears a lot. <laughs> no, no, no. Steve just had too much fun with That's the button. <laughs> well, I had this one student who um, would regularly come into my office if it was snowing and say, mm. I'll, I'll clear off your car for you before before you leave for the day. So I'd give him my car keys and he would out there and warm my car up and he'd clear it off and one time he came back in and I you can imagine what was said he hauled up my snow scraper and told me this is a piece of and I just laughed and the next morning I got to work and on my desk was a new snow scraper that he had gotten me right. because he was very concerned that I would be caught somewhere without someone else to scrape off my car <laughs> and that I would need a, an instrument that was actually helpful um, so, and that was just funny I had another day when I had accidentally, I was there late and the office manager locked the office, not realizing that I was in um, another part of the building. And so my car keys were in the office. My purse was in the office. I couldn't get home. I didn't have my phone on me. I couldn't call anyone. And my office was in a halfway house. Yeah. And so I walked out into the living room and I just said, I need someone to break into my office. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, three guys came over like, oh yeah, yeah, we got it. And 15 seconds later with a butter knife, my office had been successfully broken into and I was able to retrieve my car keys and, and get home. Yep. That there was a go. pretty, pretty funny day. At least but, you know your office is secure. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It was also just entertaining. Are you sure it's okay? Are you sure we can break into your, I'm giving you permission to break into the office. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> yep. You will not be violated. That's right. <laughs> oh man. Yes. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you had lots of fun, funny moments. Mm -hmm, for sure. Hmm. Well, so back to the dark stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are, are there other, um, I don't know, injustice? I mean, I guess this is another one that I just have kind of floating around in my head. So you, you probably wouldn't know this either, but my brother, not for very long, but was a sheriff out in LA. Yeah. And um, he only, so I think it's like the first six months of your... Um, your time with the sheriffs there, you work in the, in the jail mm -hmm. and he, he never actually got, he did that and then was like, I'm not doing this. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't, he wasn't in it for very long, but some of the, yeah, I mean, just some of the things that he experienced being in the jail. And I mean, I would almost say that it was as much of an injustice to him and to the, the folks working there as it was to the people living there. Um, I'm really glad you, you have said that. One of the things that I think people don't realize is that the criminal justice system is not just dehumanizing to the people who are incarcerated. It's right. dehumanizing to the people who work there. Right. And that's not something we often talk about. No. And I mean, he, I, I probably, I probably can't tell this story on a recording without him saying it's okay for, so, but I, I certainly could tell you later. Sounds good. Um, but he definitely described, so in the last, I don't know when, decade, decades, um, there have been a ton of reforms around yeah. what goes on inside, which, which, you know, he was the first to say it's really good. Like it wasn't good before, you know, and, but, but also it's not good now either. So what, what he described is, you know, 30 years ago, it was like, yeah, if the inmates did something you didn't like, the, the guards went in and pounded them, you know, or did whatever the heck they wanted to do to them. And that, right. that wasn't good. So they're constantly violating people's civil rights simply because they're they're locked up mm -hmm. and some of these people are locked up you know pre-trial so like these right. aren't even necessarily people who have actually been convicted of anything exactly. just accused that's all the people in the local jails exactly right and so you know you might say well most of them are criminals yeah but 
60% of them haven't actually been accused of a crime and right. they're sitting there waiting to right. yeah, have so, their day in court. So, so you're working in an environment like that and you've got, you know, guards, again, this is in the past, but guards who are violating their rights. And again, like for the most part, it's not necessarily out of like some sort of sadism. It's out of like an attempt to keep order, but that doesn't justify it. And there is some sadism that's going on. Right. Um, uh, but now like the way he described it now is really, it's almost like the inmates are in charge and that they have, you know, so like he described guards, inmates would walk up, punch a guard in the face and then lay down on the ground. And the guard wasn't allowed, like you weren't allowed to do anything physical to an inmate unless it was in the protection of your safety or somebody else's safety. So if they were to strike you or like throw bodily fluids on your, like Mm -hmm. they're doing all sorts of crazy things and then they, then they stop, then you're not, there's no retaliation possible. And so just, I mean, that's one example, but he he told a lot of really crazy stories about Mm -hmm. stuff that he saw. Um, and that's not actually even why he ended up not pursuing that career. It had, had, it was other things that would be relevant, but we would need like another hour for the podcast. (laughs) So we won't get into it. But I think you're raising a really important point, which is that I think particularly when I talk about the criminal justice system, I'm I'm generally talking about it from a particular angle because of the experiences that I've had. But it's equally as important to talk about the corrections officers um, for a variety of reasons. So for the way that they are treated by the folks who are incarcerated, um, also the fact that at least in New York right now, there are the corrections officers have legitimate concerns about whether they're going to remain employed and what they're going to do if they they lose their job. So right. over the last five or six years, New York State has consistently closed correctional facilities. And we would generally look at that and say that's a good thing, right? We're right. decreasing the prison population. This is this is positive, except that we also have a lot of people who are losing their jobs, and this has not necessarily been done well. So right. Not too far from us, we have um, several correctional facilities, but we have Gowanda and Collins. They're about 40 minutes south of here. And Hmm. two or three weeks before Christmas, um, Governor Cuomo announced that Gowanda Correctional Facility was going to be closing effective very, very soon. And there was essentially no plan for what was going to happen to these corrections officers. So they said, "We're we're going to redistribute you around the state. So either you're going to leave Gowada, right? You're going to find, you're going to be uprooted. You're going to move to another part of the state or you have to find another job. And the problem is that most correctional facilities are located in rural areas that don't have many other jobs. Often the correctional facility is the largest employer there. And so you're talking about a group of people who have legitimate concerns about losing employment and not being able to find other employment. And that's something we, we don't talk about, um, that, that does need to be raised. Right. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I, I guess I wonder yeah, if there are other, I mean, some of the things that maybe are more, um, oh, kind of like newsworthy or get brought up in conversations about like kind of like injustices with the criminal justice system would be, you know, things like, well, you had, I, I don't think you mentioned it yet in the recording, but the, the book, you know, yeah. the gentleman who um, was on death row and was innocent, you know, so like the idea of innocent people found guilty incarcerated, um, you know, obviously things like, um, racial disparities or, you know, like, so those are some of the things that I think most people, when you think of injustices in the criminal justice system, those might be like the two big ones, people who were innocent, but found guilty. Mm -hmm. And the fact that our system, you know, seems to treat different groups of people differently. Right. I don't know if you want to talk about those or if there's other things that you would point at that I haven't brought up. I'm I'm happy to talk about those. I think it's also important that Um, Those are sort of the low-hanging fruit, right? Mm -hmm. We have a problem if we talk about the criminal justice system being unjust and we're looking at just those two things because, again, we're not necessarily getting to the root of the problem, right? If we're we're saying that, yes, absolutely, it's a huge problem that people who are innocent are being convicted and they're spending time in prison. They're sometimes even being executed for something that they haven't done. It's also hugely problematic when people are accused of a crime and convicted um, and sentenced differently because of their race. Hugely problematic. But I think people generally agree on those issues. So in a sense, it's it's low-hanging fruit, right? Mm-hmm. What we don't talk about is what do you do with the people who did something wrong, <laughs> mm-hmm. are incarcerated, um, 
may or may not have good behavior while they're in prison. How do we treat them? And that's a topic that people don't like to touch because it's it's a hard topic, right? It's not one that there's, you can point a finger at someone and say <laughs> someone else did something wrong and made the situation happen. Cuomo and, did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and one of the things that continually amazed me about my students was that they just owned what had happened. Mm. And so very rarely did I have a student say, no, I didn't do that, or there were extenuating circumstances. Much more often, they would say, I really messed up. I screwed this up. I was 17 years old. I had, you know, hormones going up and down. I, my brain wasn't screwed on all the way. And I did, I made a, I did a terrible thing. I made a terrible decision and I have reaped the consequences of that. And what strikes me as ironic is that they were so willing to own that and people outside of the criminal justice system are so unwilling to admit that that's sometimes the case. Yep. Um, so I think that's really important. And I, I appreciated learning that from my students. Well, and I mean, if we're going to be honest with, in spite of all of the problems that you've laid out with our criminal justice system, the vast majority of people are in the criminal justice system because they have made a horrible, horrible, terrible decision. And you, you, we can, we can argue about whether or not they quote unquote deserve what they've gotten. Sure. But, but clearly they deserve something like they need to deal with the consequences of the action that they committed. And, um, and like that's a, you know, to the degree that a criminal justice system can approximate justice in some way, shape or form, it's going to do that. It's going to take people who have, you know, seriously hurt other people And it's going to require them with the weight of society behind it to take responsibility for that. And that's really what, you know, we can argue about theories of justice and retribution (laughs) versus, you know, reconciliation or restoration or whatever. But like at the end of the day, that that's really the, the basic idea behind it. And while ours doesn't do that perfectly, it does do that a lot. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so there's a lot there that I like, I would want to dig into, but we, we did say we were going to, and so I think it's time to move on to (laughs) the, the, um, so you had brought it, his name is Jerome. Mm -hmm. And so I think in some ways this might be a place where like bringing your own personal faith into it or just, you know, like God's vision of, of both, well, I guess God's vision of justice is one that includes mercy, right. And, and grace and forgiveness and, that in his, like in his sovereignty, he's able to bring, you know, to set things right in ways that include, include that, that are motivated by and include grace. Right. Um, but you had specifically talked about Jerome as somebody that for you seemed to really like navigate the, the tension and get the balance right between yes. that idea of, no, you did a bad thing and we're not going to just pretend you didn't, but also you know, I love you, I forgive you, and I have grace for you because I've received grace and mercy. Mm-hmm. So talk, I don't know, you could tell a story or talk, just talk about that. Yeah, I have to figure out where to go with that. Is there a specific, like, maybe like when you first met him or there's a story that you would tell about, like your experiences with him where that, that really captures that idea? Yeah, I mean, I, I just genuinely saw it in his interactions with the folks that he was mentoring. So Jerome would actually come at the beginning of the semester and speak to my students mm. because he had had the experience that they had had and just had more street cred because of it. Right. For being perfectly honest, right? You're saying you don't have any street cred? <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> eventually over the semester I would build some, but right, right at the beginning, no, there Not wasn't so a whole much. lot. Uh, but Jerome had some and, and he would recognize people right from the holding center, from, from a state correctional facility. And he would come in at the beginning of the semester and he would say to the students, look, I understand all the barriers that you're experiencing right now. I understand that some of you don't know where you're going to be living in a few months. I understand that some of you have had parole officers show up at your job site so many times that you've lost your job. I know that it's been hard for you to find employment with a criminal conviction, but I also don't want you to use those things as excuses. Mm. I want you to push forward. I want you to show up every day for class. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I want you to be in class on time. I want you to be attentive. I want you to be doing your homework. And I don't want those things to become excuses for you. And he could say that with a credibility that I didn't have. Right. Um, And he would come back during the semester and just check in on the students and remind them of that conversation. And 
like I said, he, he could get away with saying those things. Yeah. Right. And eventually over time I could too, but it took right. a while to get there. And, but that's, a, those are incredibly powerful words. Yeah. Yeah. To say to somebody in the, I mean, those are powerful words to say to anybody anywhere. Like, Hey, I know it's hard, but don't let that be an excuse. Right. You have, it's not going to be easy, but you have the capacity to do something that's difficult. Right. So choose to do it. And because would, it's worth it. Yeah. And he would remind them, you're surrounded by people who care. You're surrounded by people who, if you give 100%, are also giving 100% to support you. And he would also tell them, he would, I'm praying for you this semester. Mm -hmm. I am praying that God works in your life, that you are able to do all of these hard things. Um, and the students would hear that. Mm -hmm. They would they would hear it. And they would be so thrilled when he came back, just as he said he would, to check on them during the semester. Yeah. Yeah. It That's was, awesome. It was really beautiful. It was really beautiful. But an, another story that comes to mind, and this is not in any way my story. Um, this is very tangential to me. Mm. <laughs> um, when I first started this work, I stumbled across Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Yeah. It's a New York Times bestseller. Um, Brian Stevenson d defends people who are on death row and has for many, many years now. And one of the, the people that he defended was a man named Anthony Ray Hinton. And he had been accused of murdering two people. He was on death row for 15 years. And eventually, Brian Stevenson was able to appeal his case to the Supreme Court, and Anthony Ray Hinton was released. And he's written a book called um, The Sun Does Shine. He actually came to Canisius right before COVID started and gave a lecture there that was just beautiful. But one of the things that was was most beautiful about it is that he was able to express not only in his book, but, but in this public lecture, um, the forgiveness that he had for the people who accused him and the people who very obviously falsified information simply to put someone behind bars. And the first chapter of his book takes place in the courtroom and it's describing what's happening during the trial. And he actually gets up in the middle of the trial. He decides that he does want to speak. And what he says is, I forgive you. <laughs> Um, I don't know why you're doing this to me, but I want you to know that I am praying for you. I am praying for your family. Um, and although I am also praying that justice is done and that I get to leave prison at some point, I want you to know that I forgive you. And for someone who spent 15 years on death row to be able to say that. That's pretty powerful. Is just incredibly powerful. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those those books that every time I read it, it moves me to tears because mm -hmm. We think about how difficult it can be to forgive something small, right? Right. To forgive the person who. I was going to say, you know, you were, you were like three minutes late to this meeting. And <laughs> I don't know if I've gotten over it. Steve's been silently <laughs> sulking over there this whole time. I'm trying to figure out how to bring it up in the podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So you were saying something about people having a hard time forgiving. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But to see someone go through this experience and not only did he forgive the person who had done this to them, he he changed the culture of death row for mm. the 15 years that he was there. And it wasn't easy. He went through great bouts of depression um, where he, could, he couldn't speak yeah. because he was suffering so much from depression. But he changed the culture of death row. And the, I, one of the reasons I love this book is that I can give it to my friends who are not believers yeah. because it's such a, it's such a good story. Yeah. Um, but it starts with that whole message of grace and forgiveness and mercy, even for someone who has done something horribly wrong. And I think that's just incredibly powerful. Yeah. So how, how should we, Hmm. So I'll ask the question, but it, like it kind of needs two questions, okay. right? That's the same question, but in two different like settings. So how the question is, how should we balance accountability and justice on one hand yeah. with mercy and forgiveness on the other? Mm -hmm. And I mean, so there's the question of, you know, like this individual who is standing up and saying what you're doing is wrong. And I want you to stop. However, I want you to know that even though I don't know why you're doing it, I forgive you. Right. So that's, that's, I think that's a pretty clear like model for what it looks like for me as an individual right. to do that. Although, so, so maybe I just answered the first question, but you could answer it too. You could speak <laughs> a little bit to that, but then how does that apply at to, to a criminal justice system? Yeah, it's incredibly hard. 
So talk I, about that. Answer yeah. answer that question I, for us. You've I don't got, know that I can't answer. You got that five question. minutes and forty seven <laughs> seconds to tell us how to do this. Well, I'm going to to draw on someone else to help me answer okay. this question. He doesn't actually answer it either, but mm. I think provides an illustration. Um, so another person that I I deeply respect is Preet Bharara. I don't know. Mm. You're familiar with him, former yeah. U.S. attorney for yeah. the Southern District. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with him through you. I was so. going to say, I think I've mentioned his right. podcast. Exactly. Too. Yes. <laughs> well, he wrote a book <coughs> called Nerd. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> he wrote a book called Doing Justice, which I also have sitting here on the table, which is why Steve's calling me a nerd. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wrote this book called Doing Justice, and in the very end of the book, he tells this story about a man who this man was a white supremacist. In the days after 9-11, he decided that it was his duty, essentially, to kill people from Muslim countries. And he did. He he murdered two people and he severely injured a third person. And that third person ended up fighting for this man's life. Mm. So the man who, who committed these crimes was sentenced to prison. He was put on death row. He was put to death. But while he was on death row, this third victim was doing the same thing that Anthony Ray Hinton was doing. He was saying, I forgive you and I don't want you to die for this. And one of the things that Preparar says, and I'm I'm going to look at my notes and quote <laughs> this because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, he says the the law is an amazing tool, but it has limits. Good people, on the other hand, don't have limits. <laughs> the law is not in the business of forgiveness or redemption. The law cannot compel us to love each other or respect each other, and it can't cancel hate or conquer evil, teach grace or extinguish passions that takes people. And that would be my answer. I mean, I think it it really does take people. You can't, you don't have control over all the people in a system. And even in a situation where, where someone is saying, the victim is saying, yes, the if we're talking about purely justice here, maybe the justice, <laughs> and I, I would have an issue with this, but if you're sa- taking sort of the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth argument, maybe justice is that this man also goes to death row. But is is that what we want? Right. And the criminal justice system so often doesn't allow us to take that second step, right? right. Because it is, it is a system. It has to work across places. It has to work across time. And that, just doesn't allow for that level of nuance that you need. Right. And that's just simply a problem with bureaucracy. And you can try to alleviate that problem by making sure that you're appointing good public defenders and good prosecutors and you have good people in, in every level of this, but there are still going to be limits to how just the system can be. Yeah. All right. Slightly, slight, slight, Tack change here. Yeah. What define justice? Oh, that's a hardball to throw. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Because I think when you're thinking about it from a, a legal standpoint, it means one thing. But if okay. you're thinking about it from a Christian view, I think it can mean something very different. Answer both. Okay. So I think when I think about it from the perspective of a believer, justice incorporates that forgiveness and that mercy, Hmm. but it also, you're still responsible for what you have done. And yet, you know that there is grace and mercy for what you have done. Hmm. And I think that is hard to approximate in a criminal justice system um, where it's very much based on, on rules, right? If you do X, Y is the consequence. And that's what this will look like. And it's difficult, except on an individual level, which is, which is so challenging to do in a system, yeah. to, to have that emphasis on not only accountability, but reconciliation and mercy. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. I think I'd have to ponder well, it some more. <laughs> I mean, the, so uh, this is not my answer, yeah. but I don't remember who I'm stealing this from. It, but it's become my it's become the way that I answer the question. What do we mean by justice? And it's as a, as a Christian, this right. is how I would answer it. Um, but justice is when things are the way they're supposed to be, mm. yeah. right? So it's like a really elegant, simple way to answer. It. But <laughs> it's, like it. it's kind of a tautology, you know right. what I mean? But right. but it 
but it does help to clarify it. And, and then as a believer, I would say that the way things ought to be is the way God wants them to be. Right. And so that, that would include things like, uh, you know, a criminal, you know, a perpetrator and their victims have forgiven one another and come to be friends. Like that would, that would, that would be what happens in God's world. <laughs> right, exactly. If God right. gets what God wants, then yeah. that's what happens and that's what justice and would look like. That's what we would love to see the criminal right. justice system look like. Right. But one of the things that I've had to accept, and this is, you know, stemming directly from a book that we've been reading by John Stackhouse, mm. is that we live in a morally compromised world. Yeah. And by virtue of living in a morally compromised world, the criminal justice system won't look like that. Yeah. And we can inspire to have it be the most just system that is possible, but it will still be morally compromised. All right. Another tack change. Mm-hmm. What, um, you, you've talked about some of the, like the root causes in, um, the injustices in the system. And even just the fact that we have such a large system, which maybe you, you didn't say this specifically, but maybe you would say that simply the size and scale of it is itself an injustice. I don't know if you would say that some people certainly are. And I like, that's, I would, I would actually say that Mm -hmm. to to some degree. Um, but, um, well, certainly we would say that in God's perfect world, there would be no criminal justice (laughs) system. So in that sense, it's very clearly an injustice, but so what do we do? Yeah. And, and you could answer that question like, boy, if I was dictator for a day, these are the two or three <laughs> policy changes I would make. So you could oh, you can answer it from that perspective, okay. which I'd like to hear. Yeah. But then also, you know, and, and you, you could actually answer this because you've done some of this, mm-hmm. but from the level of like, you know, me, Rebecca Kimball, or you, Steve Shank, here's what you should, you know, or whoever's listening. The running joke is it's Amanda, right? <laughs> Amanda, if you're listening to this podcast. Um, Right. So, so from the perspective of, you know, what we as a society ought to do policy wise or what we, you know, like we have members in our church who are like, yeah, I care about this stuff and I would like to see it change. What could we do? Right. So this will very much, um, you'll know where this stems from when I answer this question, but I'd Mm. say a major thing is increasing the opportunities for education inside the criminal justice world. So one of the biggest problems that we have right now is that when people are released from the criminal justice system with very few opportunities, very little education, very little training, um, they're just very likely to recidivate. They're very likely to go back to prison. Over five years, 76% of people go back to prison. Say that again. Within five years of being released, 76% of people go back to prison. That seems like a problem. That's a huge problem. Yeah. Why? Why is that happening? It's because they can't find housing. They can't find employment. Um, they can. They have. A, they struggle to get into educational programs, into training programs, and when that happens, you're very likely to go back to the same sorts of behaviors that led you to become incarcerated in the first place. Yeah. Right? So they lack opportunities for a different way of life, and so they don't pursue a different way of life. Right. And and often you're being put back in the same situation that you were coming out of that, that led you to the criminal justice system in the first place, right? Yeah. So when you are when you are released, if you're released on parole or probation, you are released to the county in which you were convicted. So you are going back to the place where you committed a crime. Yeah. You're going back to the same people. You're going back to the same, right. um, sometimes the same behaviors. It's very easy to fall into that again. So you have the lack of opportunity coupled with the fact that you're you're being put back into the same situations that tempted you <laughs> in the first place, right? And the combination of those two things is pretty lethal. So we have a 76% recidivism rate. And one of the few things that has been shown to lower that rate has been offering college programs inside correctional facilities. Um, people who complete a college degree inside a correctional facility are 43% less likely to recidivate. I mean, that's huge. Is there anything else that has that kind of um, impact? No. So that's, I mean, what's like, what's the distant second? That's a great question. I don't know that Mm -hmm. they have actually even done studies on what a distant second is. The emphasis has really been on showing that education is worthwhile. And the reason the emphasis has been there is because federal and state funding was, for education 
inside correctional facilities was taken away. Interesting. So in 1994 with the Clinton crime bill that eliminated federal funding in the form of the Pell Grant um, for college and prison programs. State governments followed suit. They took away state funding. We had nearly 700 college and prison programs in the United States until 1994. And after that legislation passed, we had less than a dozen. So crazy. So I had a, this is a, not exactly the same topic, but, but a similar one. I, I've got a friend who's a, um, uh, basically he's a drug counselor. Yeah. Uh, there's, he's got a more specific title than that. And, um, he and I were talking recently and he was talking about how people, like people have strange short-sighted ideas, uh, you know, and it, he, he was talking about an interaction he had with somebody who had basically said, you know, we shouldn't be paying for these programs with our tax dollars, right? which, you know, like you can't understand that, you know, I can understand the idea of like, I shouldn't be paying for somebody who murdered their next door neighbor. I, sh- I shouldn't have to pay more to take care of that person. So I can understand that. But that's that's really really short sighted. And the point he made is, you're going to pay for these people exactly. no matter what. Exactly. Like, the, if you're just going to house them for the rest of their lives in prison, like the only way we don't pay them is if we just decide we're going to execute anybody who's ever committed any crime. So it costs sixty thousand dollars a year in New York State to incarcerate one person. Right. So there's actually a huge financial incentive to offer college and prison programming and reduce the recidivism rate by forty three percent and reduce the amount of money that you're spending overall on the criminal justice system. And one of the things that has happened in the last year is that federal funding has at least temporarily been restored. That happened in hmm. December or January. Um, so it's very recently come back. It was not a standalone bill. It was actually part of one of the stimulus packages that that passed. And so it could very easily disappear again. But for now, it's here. Yeah. And that's something that we need to to take advantage of, but we need to do so in a responsible way. So one of the things that um, can very easily happen, particularly with the the state of higher education right now, is colleges can see this as an opportunity to make money, right? right. Like, oh, we have a bunch of people who qualify for for Pell in, in New York State TAP. Um, we can start offering college and prison programs. It's a captive audience. It'll be great. And they don't take the time to to understand what it's going to be like to offer a college class in a correctional facility because it's an it's incredibly different just experience. like on campus right <laughs> oh yeah very similar very similar <laughs> we'll have some sororities and fraternities right. it'll be great <laughs> where's the keg right and so the the programs that have been operating for a long time know how to do this and they know how to do it really well mm. and they're extremely effective and they're effective not just while the folks are in the facility doing the college classes, but at connecting them with jobs once they're released. And these programs have such a good reputation that their graduates are able to find jobs. And making sure that that is happening is also important, right? It's not just coming in and delivering a class. It's, it's providing this holistic support and that's incredibly difficult. And often colleges don't realize that because if you go in thinking that it's just offering education, you miss so much of what the criminal justice system is. So you miss the fact that you could have students from all over the state who are at this particular facility and they're going to be paroled to all different places. And how are you actually going to support them? You know, is your college and career office that's in Albany going to be able to support someone who's been paroled to Erie County? Um, And how is that going to happen? They often don't think through things like that. And so we would, we would take advantage if we were wise of all of the knowledge that the the handful of programs that were able to operate during that lack of public funding through foundations, through private donors, we would, we should take advantage of all the lessons that they have learned Hmm. and not repeat mistakes. So if somebody in our church or, you know, I don't know, some other, you know, some fourth person is listening to this podcast (laughs) and they're like, all right, Rebecca's convinced me. <laughs> I care about it now. I got to do something. What do they do? Yeah, what do you do? Well, there are some great local organizations in Erie County that are um, working with folks who have been released from state prisons, folks who are coming out of the holding center. I would give a huge round of applause to Peace Prince of Western New York. It's mm. a local nonprofit organization that works with those two groups of people. They were very involved in the college program that, that Houghton was running. They provided a lot of wraparound services for the, yeah. the men and women in that program. And 
they have some really neat volunteer opportunities. So they actually run mentoring groups inside state correctional facilities mm-hmm. where you can, it's a commitment. I mean, you're driving right. out to a correctional facility, you're there for a few hours, um, but you're getting to meet consistently with a group of, of men or women and really building into their lives. You're, you're speaking into their lives. And often they've never had that level of individual attention or care before. Um, They have people come in and make meals with the guys and do yard work with them and take them out on community outings. Um, Particularly when someone has been in state prison for a really long time, it's like culture shock coming out. I mean, I had, I met a few people when I was, when I was working for the college that had done so much time in prison that when they were released, they were amazed that there were seatbelts in cars, right? I mean, that's the level we're talking about. Then you give them a device that they're supposed to use to to make phone calls and schedule appointments, and it can be really overwhelming. And so one of the things that Peace Prince does is try to link folks who are being released with a mentor in the community to help them go through that process. Yeah. So I know you're 75 and you've been in prison your whole life. Here's your 18 year old mentor to teach you how to use your (laughs) cell phone. (laughs) Probably 15 year old. Probably 15. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But really basic things like that, that we just take for granted that when you've been locked away. Right. The internet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. None of us know how to use it anyway. (laughs) Well, so this was a really good conversation. Um, and we didn't touch on any of the other things I wanted. I, we, we didn't talk about statistics. Uh, we'll we didn't talk about vocation or, um, you know, what it's like to, to be a believer working amongst the pagans. <laughs> <laughs> probably actually, probably you can't call them pagans. They're more like, I don't know what you call them, but secularists, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but this was a really good conversation. So we'll, we'll definitely have to do another one right. and we can tackle, I mean, there's more more conversation we could have just about justice and the criminal justice system. Yeah. I'll have to be thinking about my definition ahead of time. Right. Yes. I'll give you, I'll give you a list of questions. That's right. That sounds good. (laughs) Well, is there any, I don't know if you have a question you want to ask me or something you want to share or anything that you want to circle back around to before we call it a conversation? Yeah. So I think, um, one of the things that I would just encourage people to do is do some reading in this area. I think one of the things that I found really helpful was reading Brian Stevenson's book, reading Anthony Ray Hinton's book, um, Greg Boyle, a Jesuit priest out in Los Angeles, has written several books, Tattoos on the Heart, Barking to the Choir. He works with former gang members in L.A. And those are all books that have really um, shaped how I view the criminal justice system. And things that I like about all of those books are that they're written from a very Christian perspective, mm-hmm. yet they're books that you can give to, to non-believers that they will read and you can have a really good conversation about it. And I think that it's been an it's been an opening to have conversations about terms that we don't often hear, right? We don't often hear about grace and mercy and forgiveness in the context of justice. And those these books have been really helpful tools for me in that area. So I would say if people are looking to to spark a conversation and want some guidance on that, these books are a great place to start. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you Rebecca. This was yeah, fun. It was fun. Thanks for having me on. All right. 242 is a podcast of Buffalo Vineyard Church in Buffalo, New York. Learn more about who we are and get in touch with us at buffalovineyard.org. We'd love it if you'd subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a rating. Thank you for listening.